And as our children leave us, I invite you to turn with me in your testaments to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. As you are turning there, just wanted to uh, say once again what a privilege it has been for me to be able to be with you these last few weeks. Uh, it is a, a strange thing, for, perhaps, for a, a preacher to admit this, but uh, the way the Lord put me together, I am, I am about as introverted as they come. And so it's always very difficult for me to meet new people. Uh, but you are very easy people to get to meet. You have made me feel very welcome. So I feel very much at home here. I feel very much at home with you. And uh, I just want to thank you once again for the privilege of being able to worship with you in these weeks, especially on this very significant season of the year as we lead up to the day that we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord this morning is from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at Bethany in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut on the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we talked about the fact that the disciples suffered from a spiritual blindness that came from that self-interest that remained unpurged and uncleansed from their hearts. And because of that spiritual blindness... There were many times when Jesus would talk to them about the cross, but they had no idea what he was talking about. Mark tells us repeatedly they didn't understand. We have accounts of the disciples saying, what is this rising from the dead business? What could, it what could he possibly be talking about? And we read through those accounts of spiritual blindness, and we, by the time we get to the end of it, we kind of want to pull our hair out and say, what was wrong with them? How could they be that thick? How could they miss it? But it seems like just about the point where I'm saying that, the Lord points out some areas of spiritual blindness that I'm guilty of. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, after the last couple of weeks, one of the ways that, that I approach Scripture is by trying to picture myself being there, trying to imagine what it would have looked like. And what I've noticed is that that spiritual blindness causes itself to, it causes me to see things in ways that they didn't actually occur. And I've come to realize that one of the problems that I suffer from is that I am too familiar with Scripture. Now, that does not mean that I know it well enough. I do not. There is a big difference between being familiar with something and knowing something. And my problem is I am so familiar with some parts of Scripture that at times I think I know more than I really do. 
Let me give you an example, because I don't think I'm alone in this regard. I want you to imagine that you were there in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. You're there, and word gets to you that Jesus is coming. Jesus, this one that you have been hearing about for the past few years, this one who preaches with such authority, this one who has the ability to do such miraculous things, this Jesus who people have been saying is quite likely the Messiah, the King, the one who is going to come and in power is going to release everybody from the bondage and the oppression that they have been facing there in, Jeru in the Roman Empire. And you're there. You have the opportunity to witness this. And so you learn where it is that Jesus is approaching, and you go there, and the crowds have already started to form by the time you get there. And so you have to kind of push your way through the masses. As you're doing it, somebody thrust a palm branch in your hand, and you hear off in the distance this growing roar as people are yelling, and you can tell that Jesus is getting closer. You can't see him yet, but you can tell that the crowds are just getting thicker and thicker. And the closer he gets, the louder the noise is. Can you picture it? Can you imagine yourself being there? You hear off in the distance these shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, which is essentially praise God. Uh, people are yelling, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And all around you, there is this talk saying, at last, after all of this time, the Messiah, the one who will deliver us is coming. He's coming in power. He's coming in might. This great king is approaching. And so you're excited. You're caught up in it. And finally, finally, you see him, and there he is, the Messiah, the coming king, the one who in power is going to deliver everyone, and he approaches, and he's riding on a donkey, and he looks so majestic, and he looks so noble, and he looks so strong. Can you picture it? Can you picture yourself being there that day? Well, let me ask you something. Let me shift it a little bit. Let's suppose, let's suppose that word comes to us today. Today, during our worship time, that the president is in town. And he's going to be speaking not far from here. And as it turns out, just as church gets out this afternoon, well, this morning, I'm not going to keep you that long. As soon as church gets out, he's going to be passing by right on Chipman Road. A presidential motorcade. Now, not everybody gets a chance to see the president. So just as the service gets out, we leave here and already the streets are packed. People are lining the streets on both sides, wanting a chance to be able to see the president. As you, as you push your way up there so that you can get a good view, someone thrusts a little American flag in your hand so that you can wave it. And off in the distance, you can hear the shouting. You can hear the police sirens. You can see the crowds getting thicker and thicker. The excitement is building because the most powerful man in the world, the leader of the free world, is coming. And as the sirens get closer and the crowds get thicker, finally, at last, you see him. There he is, the leader of the Western world, the most powerful man on the planet, the president of the United States, riding a unicycle, and you get... <laughs> Why are you doing that? What? Oh, I get it. Yes, the unicycle. Right. What am I thinking? Presidents don't ride unicycles, do they? No, presidents ride in limousines. Limousines are a symbol of power. Limousines are a symbol of, of the prestige of the office, but not a unicycle. I mean, a unicycle, a, a clown rides a unicycle in a parade, not a leader. Well, how come you didn't laugh earlier when we were in Jerusalem and we saw the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, 
the fairest of 10,000, the Lord God Almighty riding in on a donkey. You see, donkeys are not the forms of transportation for kings. Had Pharaoh arrived in Jerusalem that day, he wouldn't have been on a donkey. He would have been astride a mighty war horse. Had Caesar come into town that day, it wouldn't have been on a donkey. He would have been on a chariot. Horses and chariots, those are the symbols of power. That's why in Psalm 20 it says, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Horses and chariots, those are the stealth fighters, the, the most sophisticated tanks of that age. They are power. They are prestige. When you go to a parade, the ones who are up front, the ones who are dignified, they're on the horses. Who comes in on the donkey? It's the clowns who ride a donkey. Have you ever seen a grown man trying to ride a donkey? I mean, he's got his lung, the man's got to basically hold his ankles up to keep them from dragging on the ground as he sits astride this fat little donkey that comes waddling around. Kings don't show up on donkeys. Now, I know that there are some who will tell you there's that, that there's this concept of this royal donkey and that when people saw Jesus on a donkey, they understood that to mean that he was there in power and prestige. Can I just point out that when Jesus arrived that day, he was arriving in fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and what does it say there? It says, Behold, your king comes to you lowly on a donkey. When Jesus came to Jerusalem that day, he didn't come with the trappings of power. He came with the trappings of humility and selflessness. And why? Why did he do that? And I guess more to the point, why is it that we have a tendency not to see it that way? Why do we imagine it to be something different than what it was? But as I look at that last week of Jesus' life, I noticed several different times where he seemed to pick some symbols that took our concepts of power and position and authority and flipped them completely upside down. Because the first one was there on that first Palm Sunday. And then I see another one just a few days later. It was on Thursday. Thursday evening, Jesus is gathered with his disciples for one last supper. We're familiar with it. We've heard it so many times about, uh, about how solemn the occasion was, about, about the things that he, he said that day, about the rituals that were instituted that day. In a little while, we're going to celebrate together the sacrament of Holy Communion. We do that because on that, the night of that Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and he took the cup. He broke that bread. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And because he said that, we do it. We do it every week in this church. But he did something else that night. Something else that night because he knew that in just a few hours, he was going to be taken away from the disciples. He was just hours away from turning the whole shooting match over to them. The future of Christianity rests with these guys. He's got precious moments left to be able to instill upon them what he understands to be the most important things that they need to know in order to carry out God's plan for the salvation of the world. And what did he do? What did he do in order to communicate to these leaders of Christianity? These ones who would be the top men who would, who would not only get the movement going, but would be remembered for the rest of history as the top leaders, the men of power, the men of position, 
Jesus took a basin and a towel, and he got on his knees, and he began to wash their feet. Peter was horrified. He looked at Jesus. He said, God forbid, you will never wash my feet. And you know, I have some sympathy for Peter because I would have said exactly the same thing. Jesus, wash my feet? <laughs> no, no. Me wash his feet, perhaps, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, down on his hands and his knees in front of me, that is not right. That's, that's wrong. That is just plain ungodly. But as William Temple said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you have, the more dangerous you become. And if your concept of God is wrong, well, I guarantee you will see him do a lot more ungodly things. Because the very next one that we see just a few hours later, Jesus, the one who created everything and everyone, the one who holds it all together, the one for whom it was all created. He is the reason for it all. And this one, who is Lord over everything, humbly, submissively, allows himself to be arrested, to be taken away, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be judged, to be crucified. And there on that central cross, on that first Good Friday, we see the most supreme act of humility and sacrifice that the universe has ever known. See, sacrifice is nothing new. To be religious is to give sacrifices. That's been going on for all of human history. But the sacrifice that takes place on that cross has never happened before. See, unlike, unlike every other sacrifice where you have the created offering a sacrifice to the creator in hopes of being able to get the creator's approval, here we see the created, we see the creator offering himself as a sacrifice to the created. God at our disposal. God to do with as we please. You know why he offers himself as a sacrifice? Because he is who we need. The world offers a whole bunch of false options. But Jesus knew that to offer anything other than himself would be offering something absolutely inadequate. And so he gives himself humbly and completely and willingly. He gives his life on that cross for you and for me. Now, I've grown up in the church. I've heard all of these things time and time again. I acknowledge them. I'm grateful for them. But I've got to tell you, I'm uncomfortable with all of them. I'm uncomfortable at the cross. To watch something like uh, the, the passion of the Christ is almost unbearable. To be able to see what Jesus went through. To even fathom what that would be like for anybody, let alone the King of Kings, let alone for God Almighty to be subjected to that, that's very difficult for me. And I don't totally understand all of it, but I am grateful for it. 
But at the same time, there's a part of me that just kind of wants to skip over that. There's a part of me that, that reads the lawn and sees Jesus on his hands and knees washing feet. And I kind of want to skip, I want to hit the fast forward button and get past that. Uh, riding in on a donkey, I just, to deal with that, I rewrite it in my head to make it something other than what it was. Because you see, I have the advantage of having read the last book of the Bible. I've read Revelation, and I know how it ends. See, I know that those symbols of, of humility and sacrifice, that those are not permanent. I mean, that's, that's not the Jesus that we're looking forward to, right? I mean, we know that he is coming back again. And when he comes again, he's not going to be on a donkey. No, the book of Revelation tells us that the day will come when he will split the eastern sky and he will come down, and he will come down on a mighty white war horse. That's a symbol of power. That's a symbol of authority. That's what I want to picture. And we know that when he comes back, there's not going to be any more of this savior of the world groveling on his hands and knees in front of his created. No, on that day. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That will be the day that everyone who has ever lived will acknowledge his power and his supremacy and his lordship. And we know that on that day, there's not going to be another cross. No, on that day, he is not going to be the one who is judged. On that day, instead of a cross, he will be on a throne and he will be the one doing the judging. And everyone who has ever lived will appear before him and no deed will escape his notice. And that's the God that I want to picture. That's the Jesus that I want to imagine. I don't want to spend my time thinking about these symbols on that last week of his life. I want to think about him in his power and in his might and in his glory. Except I'm reminded of something, something something that, that still hasn't fully gotten a hold of me, and that is this, that on that day, on that great and glorious day, that day in which there will be the greatest manifestation of power that the universe will ever see, there won't be a single sin saved, forgiven. Not a single sinner saved. Not a single addict freed from bondage. Not a single broken relationship healed. When he comes in power and might, he doesn't come at that time to save, he comes at that time to seal, to usher in eternity and to wrap everything up. And that's why in the closing verses of the book of Revelation, it says, let the wrongdoer continue to do wrong. Let the filthy continue to be filthy. Let the righteous be righteous still. Let the holy be holy still. When he comes in his power and in his might, he comes to usher in eternity. And there is this very powerful truth that has been there throughout all of Scripture that sometimes we have difficulty accepting, and that is this. Power never saves anyone. Salvation always comes through sacrifice. Always. It is a universal law. It is so universal, in fact, that not even God is exempt from it. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. My language may, 
I admit my language is inadequate here to describe this. If you know of a better way to say this, come and tell me, because I'd like to know. See, I believe that God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is God and God alone. He reigns without rival or competitor. He is able to do that which he chooses to do. But somehow we in American evangelicalism have never quite grasped this fact, that when it came time to save the world, he couldn't do it from the throne. If he could, the cross would not have been necessary. When it came time to save the world, he is able to save the world, he didn't do it out of power from the throne. He came here in humility and in sacrifice. So why are these symbols of humility and sacrifice so difficult for us? You see, if that's a universal law that no one is saved through power, if that's true of God, then what's that tr- is, what does that mean for you and me? You see, those, those symbols of humility, I'm uncomfortable with them, not so much of what they, because of what they mean for Jesus, but because of what they mean for me. When you, when you see that cross, who do you think of? If you're like me, most of us see the cross and we think of Jesus. But do you realize the first time Jesus talked about a cross, he wasn't talking about one for himself? Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. The first cross he ever talked about wasn't a cross for him, it was a cross for you and for me. He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, anyone 2,000 years ago, anyone today, do you want to be his disciple? Then that cross is yours. And what does that mean? That cross is a symbol of supreme humility and sacrifice. It means my life is no longer my own. If the King of Kings, if the, if the Lord God Almighty gave up all of his rights, all of his position, and all of his prestige, and willingly allowed himself to be led to a hill where he was crucified to die, then really by what right do you and I insist upon having our way and having things the way that we think they should be or retaining the illusion that we're in control of our plans for our life? If we want to be his disciple, if I want to be his disciple, then I leave all of those plans and schemes nailed to the cross and I follow him. We willingly follow the practice of communion because Jesus said, do this and remember to me. You know, when he washed the disciples' feet, he said, now that I have washed your feet, you must do as I do. You must follow my example. Now, he wasn't talking there necessarily, literally, about going around with a basin and everybody you see pulling their shoes off of them and washing their feet. What he was saying was, Don't think that you're better than me. Don't think that you're entitled to something more than me. If I'm willing to serve anyone to the point of getting down on my knees in front of them, then you, too, if you're going to be my disciple, must follow my example. 
and serve those around you, even the least of these. And when we follow Jesus, I like the idea of him being on the horse. You see, I think I'm, I think I'm spiritual enough where I don't need the same accolades as Jesus. I don't need the same horse as Jesus. I mean, he is Jesus. He ought to have the best horse, right? I, I'd be happy with second place. A horse that's not quite as good as his, not receiving quite as many accolades as him. But the problem is, if Jesus is on a donkey, then maybe I need to get down off of my high horse. And I need to pick similarly humble means of transportation. If there's any phrase that has summed up what it means to be an evangelical in the past 75 years or so, it would be the phrase, receive Christ. You've heard it. You've said it. You've heard it preached. You must receive Christ. And I believe that's true. You must receive Christ. But you know, if we're not careful, there's a very subtle heresy within those words. Because if I receive Christ, what I'm doing is I'm going and I'm taking him and and then I take Christ with me to wherever I want to go. And I can then share Christ with whomever I choose. And, and I can take Christ out of my pocket and use him in this particular occasion. But as important as it is to receive Christ, it's interesting to me that Jesus never said those words. As far as I can tell. He never went up to anybody and said, you must receive me. But he did go up to some guys by the name of Peter, James, Matthew, Thomas, Philip, and some others. And he said, I want you to follow me. And there's a big difference between receiving something and following. If I receive Christ, I'm still in control. But if I'm going to follow him, then I give up the right to decide where the next step is going to be. It must be where he leads me. And if I'm going to follow him, then I no longer get to decide when I'm going to share Christ with somebody or to whom I'm going to share Christ. That decision is his and his alone. And I just need to ask you this morning, do you wish to be his disciple? Do you wish to call yourself a Christian? Do you call yourself a Christian? Well, if so, are you saying that from the position of a horse or a donkey? Are you saying that from the position of one who is one who is serving or one who expects to be served? Do you say it from a position of being the one who is doing the judging? Or are you willing to take up your cross and be judged and be led to somewhere that you don't want to go? You know, the easiest thing that you can ever do is to be following somebody who always agrees with you. Is there someone in your life right now in a position of authority who isn't wanting to go the same direction you are? That person is God's gift to you to show you whether you are truly one of his followers. In a few moments, we are going to celebrate together the sacrament of Holy Communion. And perhaps today, as you come forward to receive the elements that represent the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, perhaps instead of receiving more,
I need you to follow. If that would be you, then on this day, this day that we remember the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord God Almighty, riding in on a unicycle, would this be your day to get down off of your high horse and follow him? In the Church of the Nazarene, we practice an open table. You don't have to be a member of this local church or of the Church of the Nazarene. You don't ever have to have come here before in your life. What we do ask is that you would be a follower of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because this is not our sacrament. It belongs to him. And we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite our servers to come. And in a moment, uh, they will be standing here on either side. If you would come forward, not to receive Christ, but in a commitment to follow him, would this be the day, a day in which he turns upside down all of your concepts of power and position?